Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, a film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Michelle Asgarali, a disabled creative producer and advocate who I worked with on our new series, Push, which just premiered February 24th on CBC Canada. We had a great conversation about disability representation, and stigmas and tropes that impact the disability community on and off screen. We also discussed the importance of creating more accessible and inclusive spaces with universal design and looked at how popular shows like The Last of Us, New Amsterdam, The Good Doctor, and the most fabulous Australian series, Latecomers, have showcased storylines with disabled characters. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, to the lovely Michelle. Michelle, welcome to Brains. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. And to see you again, Sarah. Me and Michelle, or Michelle and I, had the pleasure of working together on a TV series that's coming out very soon. I'm very excited. Um... So to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am in Ontario. I'm a Canadian writer, producer um, with a documentary and TV development background. I am in a power chair. I have a spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which is a neurological condition that I was born with. You know, I'm no stranger into those challenges of navigating a complex world, you know, of inclusive storytelling. That's kind of my, it's my my thing that I like to try and focus on as much as I can and uh, changing how we see disability and part of the, the disco, part of the disability community. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love the disco. <laughs> Michelle and I worked together on a series, as I mentioned earlier, and she was a great collaborator and also really good about helping me understand stuff that I didn't know about the disability community. So I felt you were really good at advocating in a really, um, what's the word, comfortable way? That sounds silly, but like approachable way, I think. Um, And I could ask you questions and you were willing to share. And I think it really helped me understand the stories that we were trying to shape and how to make sure that we shaped them the best way we could. And I think you are, anyway, you are a joy to work with. And I'm really glad that we got to connect in that way on the show. We had lots of fun, I think. <laughs> we sure did. So since you are in the world of filmmaking and TV for, and you like to have the lens of disability and making sure that you're telling stories for the disability community, I'd love to talk a little bit about representation in our current state of film and television. So latecomers which was a series out of Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about what they did right in your mind on that series? I think I was drawn right away. You could you can actually tell just by watching it that there are people who have lived experience immediately from the disabled point of view as and the caregiver point of view, I think, within within the series uh, right away. 
Uh, it is about two strangers uh, with cerebral palsy, um, Frank and Sarah, who meet up at a bar because their their friends slash caregivers have taken them out, you know, out on the town, and they're almost immediately forced to be together as friends uh, just because they have a disability. But all four of them have like this quirky kind of loner and different point of view on life and relationships and we get to see like real life one of the great things from the show is there are two different people with cerebral palsy two different ways that they communicate um frank uh who's played by actually the creator uh of the series oh i didn't know that yeah, cool. uh, Angus was one of the creators. Has a little bit more difficulty in, you know, for the the average person to understand what he's saying. A little bit more of a speech impediment, but throughout the show, it's never something that's really addressed or made a big deal about. Everyone kind of understands what he's saying. You got open captions throughout the entire thing, so it's not just isolated just for him. You know, just a welcoming kind of presence within that that area, which kind of stuck out a lot for me. Plus, it's a guy and a girl. Oh, my God. A female with a disability <laughs> that wants to have sex. What? <laughs> um, which is, it's just fabulous. And there's some great, not innuendo scenes, just straight out, you know, telling you like it is uh, for both of them and both their experiences is great i love that i i'm in the u.s at the moment so i'm not able to watch it and all i could read is synopsis synopsises and i was very sad that i couldn't watch it yet so as soon as i come back to canada i will be watching it i'm excited ready to binge and it's nice because they're short they're biteable binging shows yeah i think i watched it in one day it was <laughs> i was like this is so good i have to keep consuming <laughs> Which is why they made it. It's great. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that you brought up was there was two medical procedure type shows, The New Doctor and New Amsterdam, that had similar storylines, but approached it in a very different way. It's really interesting kind of background of both shows. It really comes from the core of how what's embedded in the show, right? Like The Good Doctor is about a doctor with who's on the autism spectrum disorder so you're thinking okay great we have a lead character that you know is in the neurodivergent world and like in the disability community we're getting disabled stories so we're thinking yes this is the show that's going to explore more and be this great representation of disability and it's interesting as well within the show um it's actually an adaptation of a Korean series. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when they took over, they also tried to bring in, you know, they got a little backlash of, oh, we have a um, uh, neurotypical actor playing a neurodivergent character. How do we balance this? Uh, and they tried to bring in community to do um, consults and work within the series and work more within and bring in disability as an actual storyline, not just as the doctors, but within the patient storyline. So here we are, a character who is in the lead 
who I love, Freddie Highmore. I really do. I think he's quite brilliant. Has been learning to adapt within his scenarios of, you know, people in the space were also learning how he works. But now he's no longer the resident. They need to explore other things. Uh, and they bring in two stories in one episode about disability experience, which are like, woohoo, great. What are the problems? One, a woman who was a singer and a famous person has a serious throat uh, issue. And she is given the option to have surgery that's very risky, could be death, you know, immediately <laughs> to fix her vocal cords. And of course, as a singer, this is what she wants. She has to do this because death is nothing if I can't sing, right? This idea that my life is not fulfilling unless I can do this one thing, which comes to down to the three tropes of disability. We really, in our story time, we only have three answers to what our stories can end in. And usually they're always bittersweet, but portrayed in this glorified idea that it's better this way. And one of them is the cure. So the only way to fix the problem, the only way to live with disability is to cure it and be quote unquote normal. And that's the only way you can have a satisfying life. That's her story. There's so many beautiful things within the story about sisterhood and, you know, relating to her partner or sister who was her partner in music that could have done so many different things of, no, I can live with this, but I can write music for you. You mm -hmm. could do, like, there's so many things mm -hmm. they could have done, but didn't. Because at the core, it's about fixing, right? Like, they are all surgeons. They're all diagnosticians coming there to try out and fix something. The secondary, secondary story was about a caregiver. It was about a father uh, and his son who had an intellectual disability uh, or Down syndrome and was no longer taking care of himself and was in his own trouble and challenge of what he had to choose. Of, I can't go for surgery. I can't take care of myself. I can't. If I do this, then who's going to take care of him? I need to put myself in the back burner. Where does he live? Which the answer from the doctors was, no, you have to take care of yourself. What you can do is the other option for storylines. Institutionalize. If we send your kid away, they can go get the care that they need uh, away from you. That was the storyline within it. And of course, we also have the miraculous, you know, healing thing at the end because the doctors can save them all and therefore they can live happily ever after and not need to institutionalize. Mm -hmm. That's the core of that show, though, again, is about fixing. Now you have a show, a different show, New Amsterdam, who's on its last season, which I'm sad about, but the core show is not about the medical procedure, it's not about the individual of fixing. It's about the idea that there's something wrong with the system and how mm -hmm. do we fix the system? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like their their tagline or the, the main, the catchphrase was their, their lead doctor saying, uh, how can I help? Right? Like that's the whole concept. 
because of that, it falls into the social parameters of disability. So with the other one, you can really connect to the idea of the medical parameters of disability or the medical model, and that the idea is disability is an individual problem for individual people that need to be fixed as the individual. And that's what a lot of we see now and a lot of where people see people with disabilities. Um, and it's also connected to uh, the charitable model, you know, everything connecting to pull your heartstring so you can feel bad for me and give me money uh, so we can fix something. But in the social model, understanding that it's not an individual, it's a society, it's the way that it, you know, the system works that makes it difficult for someone to live in that space. Um, you can see the difference in how the approach happens. So here's similar caregiver story. There's uh, two older gentlemen who come into the ER uh, and, you know, the grumpy, fun story of, you know, opposites and do they really care about each other? You know, fun stories around the story, with the, around their plot line. But they're both old. Uh, the elder one is the main caregiver is now dealing with Parkinson's or something stronger within he can no longer help the other. And the concept of if I don't, I can't leave, I can't stop, you can't take him away. If they take him away, he'll be institutionalized. What's going to happen to him? I can't do that. The answer from the doctors were not, okay, we'll give you a surgery and we'll fix you to make sure that you can do it. The answer was, okay, let's figure out, we got to be able to get you help at home. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why isn't that yes. an option? <laughs> when I was watching The Good Doctor, I was like, why aren't they just giving him aid? So it was like, here's a program. We're going to get you on this. Of course, they're dealing with New York, which has one of the stronger support systems in, in the States. But that concept, or even just the struggle to get them that help, would have been a stronger argument than, I will fix you. You know, it's just right in that core concept of the show, though. So there, there's an ability to to play instead of and see equals and I mean they have more actors within the space that are just part of the show. You have Walsh mm -hmm. who's part of the ER, who's been there from the beginning. You have your recent edition, uh what is Wilder, I believe her name is character name. Oh I think yeah, so. Wilder yeah. who uh, uh is deaf and she's mm. in part of the cancer unit what is it called oncology what is, thank you i'm part of our oncology and she has an interpreter with her the entire time like it's not a there's you know always going to be some fudging for story to make things easier like in real life you'd never just have one interpreter yeah. but to help the, the story along um he's there with her but it's not her disability isn't the core of the storyline. She is, and it's part of her. Sure, she'll have a little bit of obstacles that relate to it, but it's not the the main problem that they're fixing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And they're doing subtle things too. Like I was watching how um, someone came to, to talk with her and sat beside the interpreter and looked at her, which is how you need to talk to someone who's deaf. You're looking at the person who's deaf, not the interpreter. And they just, it was a subtle little thing. And I was like, that is great. They're modeling how to have, you know, communicate in the way that is best for someone who's deaf, for instance. And so I feel like little modeling mm-hmm. everywhere without yeah. calling it out, just, it just is. And I thought that was brilliant. They even include the, um, the masks because they're surgeons. So they're all wearing masks, but they're wearing the, the clear windowed one. I'm going to go back to Good Doctor for a second. I think something that really surprised me that I was really hoping they would discuss is this idea of like, fixing. So when Sean is saying, well, this is really risky surgery, it's unnecessary. Basically, he didn't say it, but he's like, you don't have to fix anything. And I really thought they would go down that, that route because it felt like a parallel to this idea of like, like you don't, you know, not having to fix who he is either. And this idea of like, because mm-hmm. they're talking about how he thinks about things emotionally and how he was analyzing how someone was two years before and applying it to them now. Like if you acted this way, then could you act like that again? And I just thought it was such a missed opportunity. And also when her sister came in and said, I can, you, you are the Joni Mitchell. I'm like, well, why isn't she song? Like you said, like, why isn't she songwriting? Like, why did she stop completely? And why wasn't that? It's this idea of just, I'm going to, of, I'm going to be angry until I'm fixed. Um, and it was just really interesting where I thought they could have taken it in such a new, they could have looked at such nuanced storytelling around that, that I was, I was disappointed that it didn't, um, we didn't have that conversation. Agreed. And then it went to fixing. Yeah. She was fixed and then the son got fixed and suddenly he could walk again. And it's like a mir- miracle, right? Like a miracle. Like miracle. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it comes down to that idea that, especially because that's the kind of gimmick of the show, is that Sean will find the solution. And it kind of then leads into that kind of savant world that he's got this superpower that can can, can fix everything mm-hmm. within that's that right. scenario. And if you can't fix it, then it's a problem. Like, it's not it's not a normality. So we're talking about tropes disability trips that are often the ones that are we see represented can i say like 99% of the time fix uh, institutionalization and then uh, what's the third one ends in death the happy ending mm. for Ooh. for most disabled characters are that it is better to just allow them to die peacefully that is mm. that is the ultimate solution can't live with your disability. It's too hard. But you'll have peace in the afterlife. Uh, is typically the that that melodramatic, you know, bittersweet, make you cry, but feel good at the same time. Uh, Storyline. Yeah. So I think that was there was a lot of conversation that I saw in the disability community and beyond about. The Last of Us, which episode three had a story about a carer and then someone who chose death. And this idea of like, everyone's like, oh, it was so emotional and such a tearjerker. And a lot of people have talked about how good um, the caregiver story was in terms of like the relationship and how that kind of caregiver story was. But then it ended again in that trope of death. And then I think, I believe they both then both 
decided to Romeo die and Juliet. Romeo yeah, and Juliet. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's interesting because I was thinking, okay, it's a zombie show, right? Like, it's post-apocalyptic zombie show. Of course there's got to be some sort of storyline of choosing to not live. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um because you think, oh, there's no resources. What are you going to do? Like, how do you live in this post-apocalyptic world that always exists? Uh, and then I watched it. And yeah, as you said, there's some really beautiful things that they did well. The fact that he's living in a world now. They have a wheelchair. He has proper cups there's <laughs> a cup with a handle and a lid and a straw what um you know just like little minor things that are are lovely but at the same time he had a sustainable life like what was really odd to me is this miss opportunity to show what would be the threshold what is the mm. actual threshold for too much for an individual it's so individualized and we have a tendency on camera to see the exterior physical so to him it was difficulty painting you know like this idea oh now the brush strokes are harder um Mm. i'm now drinking soup instead of and he's cutting up my meal Mm. um but the reality is most people, if it comes to a point that they can't sustain, it's all internal. Nobody gives the right the discussion on pain because most times it's about pain in, if it's mental illness or if it's actual physical pain that nobody can measure properly. Mm-hmm, yeah. and there was never an identification of pain in any of his living. There wasn't a form of like, well, the next step maybe that I can't breathe properly. So maybe there's a hint of him, you know, um, of his partner trying to make a machine that can't get the parts that are available to right. help him breathe. Yeah. Or he chokes yeah. on the food. Like yeah. just that hint of, oh, this is what's next. I can't deal with that. So the picture then becomes... I just can't deal with moving my arms and not moving my legs. And the idea for people who have not experienced it in their life, uh, whether them themselves or someone they love or know, becomes the understanding is life in a chair, not being able to move, is the worst thing that you can possibly do. Yeah, I get it. You don't want to kill himself. If that's the threshold, how do you not, pity people and not see them as people that can sustain in the world if all we see are that's our threshold to want to die you know yeah there there's there's so much more internal that they could have played with so much more like comments on society i mean look at how many ridiculous resources he had he had drugs they're full drugs he had uh like extra equipment around the house surprisingly they never built a ramp which i thought was really weird outside the (laughs) house because he fixes everything but never built him a ramp but um you know just 
Like, for a post-apocalyptic world, when you have nothing, how much they had, and yet he still... I don't know. Again, this is a very personal and very opinion. Like, you can't judge um, individuals' choices, but Mm -hmm. as a story... It's just so hard to to think of missed opportunities more than more than what we are ready to you know ready to watch again. There's also kind of the intersection again that they are a gay couple, and once again we see another character from the LGBTQ community that have to die on screen. Right, yeah. There's always that. that uh, yeah. But they found like they create, everyone's like, oh, there's such a beautiful couple and such a wonderful relationship and such a caring relationship. And yeah, and then they killed them. And they killed them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, yep. All the time. There's always very similar tropes between um, minority uh, characters in, in yeah. film. Totally. And disability yeah. usually is the one to to connect it all <laughs> that can overlap just like in life anyone yeah, can yeah. join <laughs> come join the club yeah how, but how do you <laughs> think these representations affect the stigmas that exist in society today it's always been seen as different right like their disability is the monster that you have to conquer uh, through fairy tales through media that makes everybody the outsider. Built on that, then they just don't exist. It's either we don't exist in the spaces. So whenever there's so few roles or stories, you only get, and then you only get one type of storyline, makes it just a monolithic experience. So how do you relate to someone? You get to see it in schools. You know, we should have special programs like how do I treat this kid so maybe I should treat them differently you know why not just bring them in together how do I you know the entire you know it's the only type of segregation that's allowed in uh, society especially in the growing years so then if you don't see anybody growing up as a kid no one knows how to deal with people within the real world when you're trying to find a job or can they take on this responsibility can you like can we give them opportunities I'm not sure maybe they need too much help more than what's the point kind of because scenario so it just continues so it's being able to see real experiences on screen and breaking those tropes you know allows us to actually easily exist (laughs) Yeah, and uh, uh, make some of those changes. Hopefully, that need to be done to be able to do so. What are the types of shows that you work on in the industry that to to bring about some of this change that we see something different on screen? What are you looking for to do in in your work? I'm a doc person on uh, in the real world because typically the best stories you can tell about someone with a disability or actual existing people instead of making up the fiction uh, and needing to do so. So um, my 
Like my first real job was uh, working on a show called Employable Me. I got a chance to be a mentee um, within the program and work under the showrunner and the writer's room and then the social media aspect of it all, which follows neurodiverse um, and people with physical disabilities as they're trying to hunt for a job. And I loved the show. I think it was a fantastic show. And unfortunately, I mean, they lasted four seasons, which is pretty unheard of in, in Canada. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it gave people a new look at how we can fit in the job world. Mm -hmm. I then started to look in entertainment because that's where <laughs> I live. and. We created a show with Winterhouse Films on the hustle <laughs> that performers have to navigate in the entertainment industry. So we followed models, musicians, actors, comedians, six of them, and their personal stories. So always, I think, and everyone who works in doc is looking for that personal touch, those, mm -hmm. you know, humans, and not just the the issues around it. Yeah. I like humor. I like to be entertained <laughs> <laughs> and not just be considered a sad choice. Uh, something as I'm sure Sarah's now used to the term of inspiration porn. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, maybe maybe you can touch just touch on what that is because I've and this will lead to another question later on. But like now that I've I've been aware of the term inspirational porn for a while, but working on push and explaining what the show is, people often say things that are like the typical inspirational porn style things like, Oh my God, I'm, that's must be so inspiring. And I was like, yeah, that's not the point, but so explain what inspirational porn is. Oh, I wish I, I should, you know, I should have this like down pat and like some beautiful, beautifully phrased thing. The concept of inspiration porn is that it is made to make able-bodied people feel that their life is better <laughs> like just watching us something that is so heartwarming and you know just so overly sappy that their existence must be so hard i should be grateful for what i have mm -hmm. just like mm -hmm. basically this idea you know that it basically comes down to pity but yeah. usually you can see it in especially in marketing and um commercial work and charity work and reality like any kind of competition show mm -hmm. you know you boil it down to what is the the problem within their life you know that they're they're dealing with you know their their grandfather has cancer so now i gotta sing um yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. it's a it's, it's like the, the epitome of inspiration point but usually it's Related to disability is, you know, um, the person with Down syndrome who found sport uh, and can now, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's I can overcome my disability and, and be what I want. Mm -hmm. You leave going, yeah, if he can do it. <laughs> I can do it. Why am I not Ugh. getting off my ass? Yeah. 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 That's the, the fun inspiration point. And I'm sure there's an idea of, well, why, why is that 
bad, other than making you feel icky. And usually most people can tell when you feel icky about it. But you ignore it because you're like, oh, that's heartstrings. That's not icky. It's just that lesson, right? Like you're now equating your life. Like you're looking down at that that person and they're just living. Yeah, they're they're just living. That was one of the lines I remember that stuck out to me. I don't even know if it was in the show or not, but they're like, don't be inspired by me going to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store too. Like, like there was like a very simple daily thing that you, that an able-bodied person wouldn't think twice about, but then you see somebody who's disabled and then we're going to, so I like the way that it was phrased, I was like, yeah. And so now when I tell people about our show, and they come back with like that idea of like, oh, it must be so inspiring to see these people. And I was like, these people, they're people living their lives. And anyway, I get get a little angry. <laughs> so right. what can the able-bodied community in, in our industry and in society at, at large do to be a, a better ally? Talk to people normally. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I think speaking of our show, I think being being said it once, it's like just like look people in the eye would yeah. be nice. You know, start, especially if you're building a story, start figuring out what is that core motivation that you're trying to kind of say. Like, mm-hmm. are you are you putting disability at the center of the problem that needs to be fixed or overcome? That overcome is usually the cause of, of the main problem. Mm-hmm. I have to applaud Sarah because one of my favorite things when we did on, on for PUSH, we got to do... Uh, disability training and the concept that adapting the process is not something that has to be done as an individual like it's not just for special people it's Mm -hmm. not just for those with disabilities uh it's for everybody and you took that concept to heart when we were trying to solve how do we do the editing process for the show and someone was like well I only use Abbott and I only use Premiere and Sarah's like well isn't that the point of how we're supposed to do our show is whatever makes things easier to actually work for people why not try and use both like isn't that the point it's not just for Michelle it's not just for our cast it's for everybody and that universal design and the way that we perform and compassion for people, I think ableism is not just about disability. Yeah. It's about everyone. I will say that I really want to have everyone, before any job happens, to allow everyone to say the things that they need to have the best environment for them to work in. Exactly. That is what I would like to be put everywhere, well, everyone everywhere should have disability training, mm-hmm. especially as I think it's, the stats are one in five people in Canada have disability. A lot of people who are currently able-bodied may become disabled mm-hmm. as they grow older. And, and one in four in, in, in America um, are classified with disabilities. And yet it is put, the onus is always put on the person with disability to ask for what they need. And then it makes them feel othered. It makes you feel like you don't want to create trouble and you don't want to be seen as trouble because you want to be hired. And there's all this like stuff that comes with it and, or having to be the only voice that advocates for um, disability. Mm -hmm. It should kind of, if we all under have a greater understanding and education, 
like for instance, I went to the Canadian Film Center. We just did a members, um, a recent alumni thing. I was like, there's no disability training. As someone with a disability, I would feel uncomfortable to disclose my disability mm-hmm. to your organization. Yeah. yeah. And you were trying to create an inclusive space. I'm not saying that you aren't, and they have been doing great strides in, in many capacities, but not around disability. So I'm like, you need access and inclusion training. You need mm-hmm. disability training. You mm-hmm. need to um, create more opportunities within your programs. They do like one day shoots. Are you ensuring that there is opportunities for people with disabilities as well? Yeah. Okay. And I think the fact that push gave the opportunity for the crew, like it was great that I got to take a disability course and I've done some other courses because I've been, you know, wanting to expand my mind to see things differently and learn more. But that was the first show I've ever worked on where there was any sort of training for the post team. And that I was even included in that because I could see that they could, people could easily think, oh, well, we don't need to include the post-production. They're not on set. Like, as in more of like, we're learning this disability, we're learning this accessibility stuff because we have to interact with the crew and the cast have to interact. Well, I'm not, I'm not interacting with anybody other than sitting in my edit suite, but I'm helping tell the story. So I need to understand accessibility. Like I need to understand these things. So anyway, I thought it was really great to be included, to actually have the opportunity to learn. And then, yeah. and yeah, I'm taking a lot of that information I learned by Ophira, who's a brilliant woman, and everybody's talked to Ophira into like other things I do, and 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 looking at like what is the best way for everybody to work in a situation. And there, and we have like I I was part of the respectability lab last year, and one of the they were someone who came in and talked about the cost to create accessible spaces is not actually that much more. I had a conversation with a friend the other day. We were actually talking about the good doctor, ironically. And I said, I don't, I don't believe, and I don't know if this is true. I said, I don't, I have a feeling, I don't know if there's any people, writers on staff who are autistic. And she said, oh, well, maybe it's just if, as long as they include people who are friends of people who are autistic. What? It's not the same at all. So I said, well, but why are you thinking that, that they can't, they can't? And she was kind of like dodging the question a bit. And I was like, well, you know, because like maybe it's going to be like, if she's trying to say it's too hard or they aren't able to do it. And I looked at her yeah. in the eye and I said, I am neurodivergent. Do you think I can't do it? And I'm like, the crossover between ASD and ADHD is huge. And so like when I watched As We See It, I cried every episode. I saw a lot of relatability of things that I experience mm-hmm. as someone with ADHD and being neurodiverse. And yes, other things are very different. But there's a lot of crossover and you're diminishing a group of people because you think, oh, this, these people aren't able. Mm-hmm. So we won't give the opportunity. We won't look outside of our thinking that, oh, if you have, if you're neurodiverse, you're not able. It's so funny because even I, so here's my own ableism. Watching that show, I was like, this is such a great show. And there's the, oh, what is the female character's name? That lives in the house. Violet. Violet, yes. And she's, you know, very passionate and like really into it. And the whole time, like, they never, they never found she must be one of the neurotypical actors playing a a neurodivergent character because they never found an Asian woman that can be this good. They would never take the time to do that 
to be a thing. And then we came back and saw an interview with one of the leads of the show. Probably Rick Glassman. Yes, who was on and he was saying, yeah, they're like, they're, we are all uh, neurodivergent. And even some of the characters that are not are playing, you know, have have some sort of disability and different from like learning from what our own personal experiences are versus the characters, you know, like the characters have different levels of where we are, but, you know, I meet someone in myself and I meet the character as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, Oh yeah, that was totally ableist of me. <laughs> that didn't happen. But that's what, cause you we know? expect that. But I also like, it's interesting. I cried because I've identified it so, so much my whole life. I've tried to fit a square peg in a round hole. Always being told that I was not right and always feeling not right and not feeling like I could do it right. So I always like blame myself. Like it's my fault. I'm just not doing it right. I'm not existing correctly. Mm. And so when I started to really unpack it and understand that it's not about changing me, it's about changing my environment and creating a better environment for myself. The thing, the missed opportunity in that show was that it was, I love that it was, talked a lot about the carer experience. The creator, the showrunner, has a son with ASD. He is talking from that experience. And I think there were some beautiful moments with it. I just wish that there was a character in their lives that said to them, you know what, if you don't need to, if you don't want to look at that person, you Mm -hmm. don't have to. Yeah. If you can't make eye contact right now, that's okay. You don't have to smile. Like I wanted them to educate, even in their environment, their work environment, you're like, this is what will help this person achieve better, can we create a better environment for them? Mm-hmm. Instead yeah. of having to conform, change yourself, being told that the way that you think and the way that you feel is invalid, yeah, it, which is what happens a lot. But I want to also see, well, what is what are the answers that aren't just what we see? Mm-hmm. Because then we're just reinforcing what we see. I remember writing an essay about it and I was like, if I was writing season two, I would bring in a character who would be encouraging the idea of like, how do we create better environments to live in mm-hmm. instead of having to try to like hide yourself? It would be great when universal, you know, accessibility is not a privilege. It's a right. Yeah. And actually yes. thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it can, uh, it makes a difference. You know, you're not, not being special and temperamental, <laughs> asking for help. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm curious, Michelle, for you and being in this industry, you worked on that first show, Employable, Employable Me. Was that the first thing you did in the industry? No, I, I've been. So I graduated uh, from media arts, so television and film in 2007. Mm-hmm. I started working in Employable Me in 2017, 2018. I worked in basically using internships as like my sustainable, because that's, you know, that's where people see that they're, and I have a feeling it's because it's relating to that charity aspect, right? Like it's mm. like, I can make you a space because you're learning. So that's, that's where you can fit. And I worked. I always thought that home would be 
had a broadcaster because they are large enough to maintain certain standards. If I make it accessible, then they're still there for a long term. Yeah. Loved it. I love original programming. I think it's, you know, hopefully one day that's still going to be my ultimate home is being able to green light other projects and get other people going. But again, it came down to, well, if I wanted to do that, then I'm going to have to move because one, it's not close enough. So now I have to worry about transportation. Mm-hmm. And then when I get there, usually there isn't a bathroom that I can use. So that means I have to move really close so that I can have a shorter day, that I can go home, go to the washroom, maybe come back or just not, you know, work for five hours, not go to the washroom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of scenario. It's not ideal. Uh, and then transfer home. So it would have to be shorter contracts. Mm-hmm. Until the idea of remote, uh, like I would be working remotely yeah. for a while. So researchers, you know, like any kind of research work, yeah. some writing work, transcribing, that sort of thing, then it would get me in the the door to to do things. But I always kind of felt that, you know, actual production was never going to be full reality for me um, until I met uh, Ian Thompson and Karen Hansen, who... Ian was my teacher, and I worked for him as a, a, you know, teaching assistant after I graduated for a long while. And he knew what I was capable of, you know, like I didn't Mm -hmm. have to go out and pretend and prove something that I'm worth, you know, adopting your environment for just to get something. And we, as a team, ballparked different ideas, took it to AMI, which is Accessible Media Inc., uh, who deal in, in content related to disability. So I was a valued asset. If you're going to go into pitch to a company that talks about disability, yeah. <laughs> uh, having someone that has some sort of experience with it was uh, also uh, useful. And then when we came up with the concept uh, and they greenlit us, it was full on. And, you know, they allowed me, like, as a creator to actually take on a, sh- a show running gig, which is, you think about it, it's, you know, it's pretty big. People don't yeah. expect you're not only able to creatively have some input, but like, can you manage the rest of it? Yes. It was a huge learning experience. Yes. I don't know if I could maintain it like for years on end, <laughs> trying to, um, physically be able to manage so many things which I definitely learned from myself but I was lucky to get that break where a lot of people are not mm-hmm. able to a chance to to learn in the hot seat so yeah through our experience working together it's all been remote and I've been working with the whole team for the whole show remotely and in the post world like COVID allowed us to know that we could edit remotely so mm-hmm. Have your opportunities in the industry shifted since basically the rest of the world had caught up with the idea that you could people could remotely work in the space that's best for them? As horrible as COVID was for most of it, yeah. it was the catalyst for disability rights. Yeah. Because every single person, especially the film industry, learned that they could adapt, they could change the way the system works Mm -hmm. 
to get what they need. Like, because, you know, the, the the entertainment industry is a machine that you have to work through unions this specific way for this specific long, and you can't, like, money has to be delegated this specific way. Well, we just found out you can put an extra million dollars into making it COVID safe. So, and still function. Or if you're a tinier group, you can, there is ways, like if you're a smaller production, there are ways to do so. Um, it opened up a lot of people's eyes that don't need, that normally would never even think about it. So now when people ask, well, yeah, I'm going to do this one remotely. It's not like, oh yeah, well, they've seen the entire world do that for more than six months and survive. It can be done. Yeah. Um. So why not? Sure. And it, it literally became the doors opened everywhere in in 2020 when that happened because not only was your working situation remote, festivals became remote. That like mm. entire worlds opened panels were became remote. Like all of these things that were yeah, I'm never going to be able to get there. I'd never be able to do that. I could sign up into in an <laughs> instant from my home. So yeah, all of those those pieces. It's it's kind of the big fight to try and maintain to see if yeah, yeah, it it can still work. Let's try hybrid. Like hybrid can exist. Yeah, um, and maintain that accessibility. And it's not just for physical disability like myself. It's you know. Once you make it remote, you have access to captioning. You have access to be able to include uh, interpreters or DV, so describe video, like, mm-hmm. you know, audio things are much easier to add when it's projected instead of in, in, a, in a room, in a space. Um, yeah. And not to mention for people who are just, you know, locked in by location, like the people that are up north or you know yeah um that just can't travel physically um for commitment there's that's access that just i mean you have to be in a disability that's anybody's access need Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so hopefully hopefully it maintains yeah i agree yeah yeah i remember talking to a friend of mine who was a writer on supergirl and they couldn't go on set as a writer, they're writer producers. And they're like, oh yeah, there's this little gidget you can just put on <laughs> the monitors and then it is sense remote. And I can watch yeah. what's on the monitors. And then I can talk directly to the director or the AD and be like, can we do this, this, and this? Can you do it this way? Or whatever they needed to do. Or hey, that line's really important. Well, the whole time we worked on Push, Michelle's based on the East Coast. We we're filming in the West Coast and she was mm-hmm. in part of all the all the interviews. I can hear Michelle. <laughs> talking right like <laughs> on the footage michelle's there yeah so yeah <laughs> it's my goal to figure out all of these little remote pieces and get it mainstream mm-hmm. uh some more the opportunity there's no more excuse for not allowing other people chances even just like the initial shadowing like the normal process of normal yeah, the fun word. <laughs> Process of being a PA on set and like just that that structure doesn't always exist for people. So how do you just how do you make those connections? How do you network? How do you prove yourself? And now if there's 
new ways to do so, mm-hmm. why not? Why not? And especially if it becomes so universal, for especially for those big productions. Yeah, totally. There's room. If you can be COVID safe. Yeah. You yeah. can create accessible sets, yeah. right? Like you said. Yeah. So yeah. it's not even like, oh, it's, they're like, it costs too much. I'm like, okay, can you show me the numbers? I'd like a breakdown. Yeah. There's no breakdown. No. It's just, it's assumption. It's going to be too expensive. We're not even going to try. But it's even simple things. I remember one day just working with Michelle and they were like, we have to re- record something. Oh, the studio's booth is on the second floor. Okay. Well, and like, you just think, well, what are the other options? I think one of my favorites, two stories I learned. One was um, there was a production in the States um, and there is a stunt coordinator that uses a wheelchair. And I don't know if it was, you know, short term or long term, but they told them, so they're like, well, I need a ramp. I need two ramps to get up onto the stage and to leave on the other side so that we're not have a problem and that cool, build it. They ended up saving two hours a day because now all the set people and the crew could push all the equipment up to the wow. onto set so much faster just to just to do so so i mean like it's like you're thinking oh okay now i gotta work out the cost to rent or build a ramp you know like thing and then whoops we just saved two hours and time is money mm-hmm. uh and and anything production related and you know and the other fun things that i always laugh at is we already accommodate all stars get riders. Yes. If they need to have a private jet there. And you're like, okay, sure, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. what's the difference? Um, yeah. Of course, it's the value of who's the priority in the production. I think as we're talking about film and TV and media, like what would you like to see in the future? And not just like, I think too, like as we're talking about behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera, you know, talk to that, but also you know, what would better representation look like to you? What would better environments to work in look for you? Oh, gosh, it's so big. Um, yeah. <laughs> like to end on a big one. <laughs> yeah. The biggest sci-fi answer is that hybrid. That hybrid mm-hmm. environment changes everything, I yeah. think, mm-hmm. um, within production side. Um, on screen and in representation is what everybody wants, I think, is something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all desperate to see something not the same storyline over and over again. Uh, and to be honest, disability does that. There, are, We're always saying, oh, there's no more stories left to tell. But there is an entire group that is huge from all over the world and i think that's a big thing is where we like to tell a single story of you know the white male in the chair that just lost it from lost his use of legs from a war injury or something Mm -hmm. um so we can see that comparison of before and after and i'd love to see existence uh of different people i'd love to see them together Oh my God, we're not isolated. <laughs> Would be lovely, which I think we get a little of that. Thank goodness, in push. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, there's so many things I want to see. Yeah, um, and I'm excited to see them. I think they're happening in tiny little spaces. Mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. great to see it in the main stage too. 
Yeah. I'm writing a show that has one of the main characters is ADHD. I don't see a lot of women with ADHD on screen. Um, yeah. Or that, that aren't vilified and not identified yeah. as ADHD, but completely vilified for being who they are. So I'm creating this and I remember having showing someone else with ADHD and they're like, oh, but that's not how it should be. It should be like this, this, and this, like, this is important. It has to represent us. And I talked to my therapist about this. I was so mad and it was really, but it was like, I understand the feedback, but I was so mad and I felt so offended. And she's like, why? It's just their opinion. Show your experience and your experience won't be like anyone else's experience. And that's the point of it that we, we can only know what we know and share what we want to share, but we are not a monolith. We're all different. We don't have to represent everyone because we can't. And it's better to, to represent the experience that you know, or that you want to tell. Um, and that's okay. I just felt like I had to protect this character because I realized I was, it was me I was protecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like that character was experiencing the world. Like I was experiencing it as a teenager. Yeah. And trying to like create like a space that I would have wanted. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Having more than one character helps, you know, fall yeah. into that. Exactly. And even in Push, each character, like, well, of course, even in Push, because everybody's a human and has different stories and like, yes. they experience things differently. But we had those conversations like, oh, but not everybody's going to feel this way. It's like, well, because of course they're not. But we, you know, there's, yeah. we still run up into that idea of like, we want to make sure we represent the community, right? But within the community, people are going to feel differently. And so it yeah. was just a constant, like, checking of, our, of myself when I'm trying to cut something together. And like, I think the whole yeah. process what is the message that we're trying to get out there? People have disabilities and are in the world everywhere. We're not only there for a storyline to make you feel good. Yeah. And yeah. I think trying to create that where, where I want to tell stories that include those experiences, but don't have to be the, the focal point of the show to show that we are everywhere, that we exist. Where can they find you or find information about you to follow along with the work that you create? Um, well, you can... In a long roundabout way, if you go to uh, breakingcharacter.tv is the original show that we produced, hopefully for another season coming, Um, (laughs) it has a link to our our website, Crim Winter House, that uh, has all my contact information, Um, and you can find me on Instagram uh, at watchthosetoes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know in our latest production for sarah which i think we're both really excited it's coming yeah you yeah. can catch you can catch push on uh on cbc and cbc gem yeah uh, starting february 24th it's Woo-hoo! coming sarah so excited by the time this episode airs it will be out so you can catch up on a few episodes and then follow along for the rest michelle thank you thank you thank you so much for taking the time to to sit with us and um share your experience and share all all the things and, and just being being here with us because i love hanging out with you so this is like extra special so thank you so much thank you I just need to shout out that Michelle is the best and I'm so (laughs) happy that I got to meet her working on Push and like she's like my new best friend and I was actually chatting with our um, production manager today and she's like, I love Michelle. I'm like, I love Michelle. Like everybody loves Michelle. So we love you, Michelle.
Michelle just sent over her picture in her bio, and I saw her picture, and I like smiled automatically. I'm like, oh, Michelle, like I just she is she's just a lovable human. So a lovable human. I love lovable humans. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna like break right into our like awesome <laughs> things because it's related to this. Something really cool that uh, we mentioned earlier: a woman named Ophira. She actually worked on something called the Accessible Writers Lab. So they just came out with the uh, 2022 edition case study report that was de- developed through the work of Ophira Koloff, who is the creative director, and was made possible with the support of the Writers Guild of Canada. Now, what they did is they created an accessible writers lab and yeah, looked for people across Canada. Um, it was a national program experimenting with what an accessible television writers room might look like and focused on collective accessibility. Uh, knowledge sharing and working to create pathways for disabled creatives to thrive in the Canadian television industry. On March 30th, 2023, you can attend a free webinar presentation focusing on key learnings for the Accessible Writers Lab report. Um, we'll put a link in our show notes, but it's uh, at eventbrite.ca slash e slash 570-77-887-3977. If you want to check out the full report, it's available in both French and English, and you can um, go on to uh, rafto, so R-A-F-F-T-O dot C-A backslash accessible dash writers dash lab dash report. I think it's great strides to help us figure out how to make better accessible and more inclusive spaces. And though this applies to TV writing, it, I think it applies to everything else too in the, in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Universal design is for everyone. So mm-hmm. like, let's just start, let's just start doing it. <laughs> like, why aren't we doing it? <laughs> we'll get there when everyone asks for it so everyone please continue yes. to ask for yes. it and demand yeah. it and let's make these better spaces for everyone yeah heather's probably not gonna say this but i'm gonna shout her out because she was nominated for an award through the writers guild of canada for her work on hardy boys season two woo, woo, woo. Go ahead, Yay! Yay! i'm very excited <laughs> she gets to go and get all fancy and go to the gala and and then hopefully bring home a trophy I hope so. Or not. You know what? I was saying this to someone. Uh, the fact that, so there's five scripts per category that gets um, nominated. Mm-hmm. And the scripts are picked by other writers because mm-hmm. it's for the writer's guild. So it's other people in the guild. And I just feel really honored that I got picked by writers to have the best script. And so for me, that's what's awesome, I think, yeah. about this. So even if um, we don't win, I think that's okay. Yeah. I think just like being able to be like, wow, someone really thought that I had one of the top five scripts this year in Canada for for writing, and specifically like for writing, uh, it's in the teen tween content. I'm just like, wow, I feel yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you should. We'll celebrate you. It's amazing. Yeah. I love it. Also, my sister named Heather Taylor, who's in this here call with me right now, is in my city. And so I'm excited to spend time with her. Yay, sister. Well, if I'm going to be super factual, which I'd like to be, I'm actually not in the same city. I'm in a neighboring city called Sherwood Park. (laughs) Me, me, me. That's that's what it's like having a bigger sister. That's just like maybe just being around me, I guess. Anyway. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bow. Our theme music is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. 
You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye. Bye.